With that again, John chapter 5, we'll get verses 18 to 29 this morning, says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. True, this is an important verse here, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. I grew up uh, about an hour or so from the beach. Uh, the Southern California coast is famous for its beaches and especially surfing. If you turn on TV sometimes on the weekends, you'll see surf competitions. Usually those happen off the coast of California. This is because there's, there's large waves that dominate that coastline. I know as we've moved further east, we go down and try to get some beach time at least once a year. Been down to the Gulf Coast. Obviously, there's like no waves out there. Went out to the Atlantic Coast this last week. A little bit larger waves, but they pale in comparison to the West Coast waves, which are kind of big surfing waves. Uh, large waves dominate beaches like Huntington Beach. I don't know if you've ever heard of Huntington Beach. That was kind of our favorite one to go to. There's a place called Newport Beach. Beach that has the wedge. That's where all the surfers go to. And then Surfrider Beach at Malibu. Maybe you've heard of Malibu Beach in Southern California, just right outside of Los Angeles. Watch it. I always enjoyed kind of just propping myself up on the beach and sitting there early in the morning and watching the surfers out on the waves. I think it's remarkable because it was even more remarkable after I tried doing it one time. I tried surfing just one time, and you may ask, why just one time? Well, this is the reason why. Because uh, I caught a wave, kind of, and I was a little squiggly on it, and the board, I shot out off the back of the board. The board came back and smacked me right in the face. And I came out with a bloody nose. Then I was scared that sharks were going to eat me with the blood in the water. So I fled, went back to the shoreline. That was my only attempt at surfing, and I will never try it again. So I appreciate surfers. The beauty of the waves, though, uh, if you've swam in the ocean, it comes at, especially large surf, comes at a cost to swimmers close to the shoreline. One, you can get wiped out by those big waves coming in. 
Uh, but the, the high surf comes in part by these, by powerful undercurrents that kind of churn underneath the water and create the force to make these big waves that you see above the water. We call those like undercurrent or riptide, undertow, those types of things uh, that are underneath the wave. And if, if you've been to the beach, maybe you've kind of been caught in the riptide before and it's pulled you out into the surf. And it can be a scary or alarming feeling, a helpless feeling when that undercurrent grabs a hold of you. Uh, the untrained eye from the beach, the lifeguards, like in, in SoCal, when they could see the, the rip currents when they would begin uh, in the little areas along the beach. But for the untrained eye, like myself, I couldn't really discern where they were at in the water, but they're there, right? They're under the surface turning around, pulling unsuspected swimmers out into the powerful waves. In a sense, this is the point where we're coming to in the Gospel of John. It's, it's this point where the undercurrent of dissatisfaction from the Jewish leadership towards Jesus is now becoming known. We see kind of the cracks begin to emerge last week in, in Nathan's preaching of the healing of what the Bible says is an invalid man, a disabled guy. We see their dissatisfaction towards Jesus because he's healing on the Sabbath. The undercurrent of their tradition, and at this point now that God in the flesh has come, their dead religious practices are are clawing at Jesus as he swims against their current. It may seem like they come out of nowhere, but, but the undercurrent, the riptide is just surfacing. It was always there underneath the surface, but now it's just becoming made known. And it's surfacing in the critical claim that Jesus is making by healing this disabled man or invalid man at the pool and, and the specific day that he heals on. Do you guys remember what day that was? It was the Sabbath day. Why is the Sabbath so important? If we go all the way back to Genesis, we'll know that God created all things in six days and he did what on the seventh he, he rested from his creative work, and that's where we get this concept of Sabbath. It was holy, and it was something that was so holy that it was placed in the law. It was one of the most important laws that you would, you would keep the Sabbath, that you would rest on the Sabbath and keep it holy. Although I believe it's safe to conclude, just logic would conclude, if God is indeed sustaining and holding all things together, could he ever truly rest from his work? He rested from his creative work, but God never rests from his what? His sustaining work. Because if he, if he ever fully rested, it would be a cataclysmic event for us. Everything would just spiral out of control and fall apart. He truly does hold the whole world in his hand. We begin to understand that Jesus' healing is, is forming the waves that will now come crashing down on the Jewish expectations of the Messiah. They had expectations for this coming Christ, but Jesus isn't really matching their earthly expectations. He doesn't fit their mold, but he is indeed, I want to tell you this truth, he is indeed God in the flesh. Looking just one verse earlier, back to 17, again, digging back into Nate's passage a little bit more, Jesus says these remarkable words. He says, my father is working until now. And he says this, I am working. I am sustaining. I am moving. This is a critical claim. It's the title of our sermon today. This critical claim to unity and connection with God, thus claiming for himself, that is Jesus, deity, or we could say godness, that he is he's saying with these statements that I am God. I am God in the flesh. That's why uh, the feathers are kind of ruffled with the Jewish religious leadership. 
It's also the reason Jesus can heal on the Sabbath, that he could do this work of healing because, in fact, he created it. He spoke it into existence. Therefore, he has a power and authority over it. And it brings us to our main idea for this morning. Our main idea is this. Jesus' power and authority as God will yield the greater works of resurrection and judgment. That's the point of this passage. Jesus' power and authority as God will yield the greater works of resurrection and judgment. It says this in verses 19 to 20. It says, so Jesus said to them, so he's conversing now with these religious leaders who are questioning him, who are dissatisfied with him, and he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever we hear those words, truly, truly, we defined this a few weeks ago, this is important. He's emphasizing it twice, and, and the word in the original language that that comes from is actually the same word that we would say, Amen. Okay? So be it. This is truth. And he he repeats it twice. So it's like truth that's really truth. There's no doubt about it. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all that he himself is doing, and this is amazing, and greater works than these, okay, the greater works that Jesus is talking about here is the healing of this invalid man. He's saying greater works than that healing, will he show him? And he says, so that you may marvel, so that you may glorify Jesus, so that you may realize who I truly am. It's a rather remarkable picture and a remarkable statement that Jesus is making. And for the Jewish religious leaders who are challenging Jesus, one that's sure, again, to ruffle their feathers... The rip current, the undertow is pulling. This connection, this unity, this oneness that Jesus has with the Father conveys this. I mean, this is a deeply theological passage here that we're dealing with. It's, It's giving us a more full and robust understanding of who Jesus truly is conveys the deep theological truth of both his own humanity. Okay, I've hit this point a couple times. We, we found out a few weeks ago when he, when he met the woman at the well, why was he there? Because of his humanity. He was weak and tired and he needed water. He sent the disciples to go get food. So we see the flesh of Jesus. But here now we're seeing this connection to God that would only make Jesus God himself. He is fully human and fully divine. And this also speaks to the triune, that is that God is trinity, nature of God. God is a trinity. That God indeed is three in one. We see here in this passage two aspects of the trinity present. The Son and the Father. We also find their their unity, their agreement, love, and connection. We see in their relationship, direction, and obedience. We see willing submission, the willing submission of the Son. Just as in, in his earthly life, his earthly father was Joseph, was a carpenter, we know that. Just as Jesus surely submitted to the leadership of his earthly father, Joseph, in learning to become a carpenter in that craft, understanding his craft, and doing exactly as his father instructed, Jesus is also unified with the heavenly father in such a way that they are distinct persons but are also one, and he carries out the work of his father. All that his father wills. 
You see, family, without absolute agreement within the Godhead, that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, nothing will come to pass. Jesus does not do anything against His Father. Okay, when we read Scripture, sometimes we can create kind of this false dilemma that the God of the Old Testament is one way and the God of the New Testament is another way. It's one God throughout. Jesus does, does not do anything against His Father. He says this, actually. I can do nothing of my own accord. Unified perfectly together. But only as I see my Father doing. You see, Jesus did not come to topple the rightful place of the Father, but to carry out the Father's will. This is why it's not a, a sin for Jesus to heal on the sa- Sabbath, because he's always at work, just as his Father is always at work. Said that in verse 17 My Father is at work until now, and I am working. Moreover, Jesus will continue to carry out marvelous work. Again, remember the context is this healing of the invalid man at this pool. And it says his greater work is this. His greater work is found in giving life. It uses the word resurrection. And being the judge over all things. These are the two critical claims of Jesus that we're going to look at this morning that we pull from this passage that he is indeed God and therefore is able to do all the things that God does. And that first thing is this. It's the critical claim of resurrection power. It's the critical claim of resurrection power. Jesus wields resurrection power. When we say resurrection, we mean the power of life. Something that's resurrected is alive. And more specifically, he has the power to take lifeless things and give them life. Just as happened in the garden, when God formed Adam from the dust of the earth, what did he do? He breathed life into him. When he formed Eve from the rib of Adam, he breathed life into her. He takes what was once lifeless and brings about vibrancy to it. Life. We're going to break up this passage. I'm trying to connect all like the resurrection themes in some of the verses and then the judgment ones. So we're going, to, we're going to jump around a little bit. We'll look at verse 21 and then 25 to 26. It says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Do you see that unity within the Godhead? You see, here's the truth, family. All of history, it's anticipated this event, this coming of Christ. The coming of Jesus is the pinnacle of history. It's the peak. This occurrence and this coming, just as the Father gives life, Jesus does as His Father does. Why? Because, again, He is who? He's God in the flesh. That's why He can do as the Father does. It's a critical claim of Jesus and His resurrection power. He's not just this. He's not just the miracle worker of the invalid man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. Jesus is God. And this ruffles the feathers of of the Jewish religious 
establishment because unfortunately at this point in time, many of them are spiritually dead to who he truly is. They don't understand. Moreover, I mean, this is a drastic claim for them to wrestle with. That Jesus would place himself in the position of God. But here's the truth. He didn't place himself there. He never placed himself there. He's always been. The Bible says this about him. He was and is and is to come. This is the Jesus that John calls the very word of God. The action of God. And he makes known his greater works in this passage. Again, he's, he's not just a temporal healer. Okay, here, here's the reality. The, the invalid man at the pool, is he alive today? In the flesh? No. Have you guys met him? No, he died. Okay, later, we know, we, most of us know the story of Lazarus. Lazarus dying and Jesus comes and raises him from the dead. But the truth of the matter is, has anybody met Lazarus? Is he walking around? No, he, he died. Physically died. So these, these healings that Jesus is carrying out that we, we see throughout the Gospel of John are evidences of who he truly is, but it's not the greater work that he came to accomplish. His greater work is found in his power of resurrecting, of bringing dead things to life. What Jesus gives us is something far greater than just the temporal healing. Okay, it's why our faith should not be totally rocked to the core when we pray on behalf of somebody that God would heal him and he chooses in his perfect will and plan to not do that. Because the promises of Christ are not temporal, they are eternal. Life in eternity. He gives life eternal. He brings, first and foremost, he brings spiritually dead things to new life. Paul says as much in, a, in Ephesians 2, 4 to 5. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Hear this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, says, made us alive with Christ. And he says, by grace, you have been saved. And the resurrection is not just, okay, so that's the, we see some spiritual aspects of it. We've, we've been raised to new life spiritually, but, but the resurrection isn't just a spiritual promise. Why? How do we know this? Because Jesus, if we fast forward to the end of the story in John's gospel, Jesus physically raised from the dead in the flesh. Uh, people touched him. He ate and drank. Jesus was physically resurrected, and the Bible calls him the first fruits in this. We also, who are in Christ, who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, will also be physically resurrected. We'll see kind of this collision of the spiritual and physical come together. Paul actually encourages the, the Thessalonians with this message. He says this in 1 Thessalonians four sixteen to 18 Okay, the, the Thessalonian church was actually wrestling with, like, has the resurrection happened and we missed it? Or maybe people didn't get raised from the dead. They just are uncertain. And Paul instructs them. He says, for the Lord himself, he gives kind of the details. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Okay, let me pause there. Okay, when Jesus comes back, people are going to know it. They're going to know he's come. 
And he says this, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, so there'll be people alive when Jesus comes back, says we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And he says, so we will always be with the Lord. We see the people of God being brought together upon the return of Christ. And then he says this, what do we do with this? He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. This truth of Christ's second coming and a physical resurrection should encourage us. It should give us confidence. Why? How? How does it give us confidence? Because this is exactly what Jesus will eventually secure in the storyline of John's gospel. You see, Jesus did in fact die bodily on the cross and he was put into the grave. But on the third day, he raised to victory over sin and death. Proving, this is what the resurrection does. It proves he is God so that we can go back in John chapter 5 and believe these claims he's making here because he is alive. We can have confidence And we can be encouraged by the promises of God. Why? Just like the song we used to sing, because he lives. Because he lives. He makes a second critical claim. The second critical claim he makes is of the authority to judge. The critical claim of authority to judge. Again, we're going to piece this passage all together. We'll read 22 to 24 and then 27 to 29. It says, For the Father judges no one but is given, so he's handed it over, given all judgment to the Son, that this is the reason why, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In other words, that they would realize who Jesus truly is. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We see this connection now with Jesus and the Father, that they are one. And then, verse 24, if if you haven't done so already, underline this verse. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, what do we have here? We have a promise. Has eternal life. Okay? I believe this this passage is speaking in a present tense. It's, you have it now in Christ. You have eternal life. And then it says this, He does not come into judgment, but this is the result, but has passed from death to life. That's good news. And he's given him, he's speaking of Jesus, and he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. It says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. So we're going to see the two pathways here. To those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's two things going on. And remember, Jesus called these earlier, he called these his what? His greater works. He has the greater work of resurrection power, and this now the greater work of authority to judge. He has the power and authority to judge. Okay, I want to be clear. Here at North Bullet Christian Church, we believe and we affirm that Jesus is coming back again. He will return. He is returning physically to complete His work to fully establish the kingdom that He inaugurated some 2,000 years ago. And when He comes now, His second coming, we learn this from the Bible, He comes in judgment. 
And you may be asking, well, what absolves us from the negative judgment of Christ? It's found again in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, what can we say about belief? What are some other words that we can put in there to believe? To have faith, to have confidence, to trust. Okay, believes him who sent me. Again, now we see this unity, this connection of the Father and the Son. He says, who who has sent me has eternal life. Eternal life is what? It's life to to the full, life in abundance, beginning now through Christ. He says he does not come in judgment, but has passed from death to life. And this, this judgment and power is granted so that all would understand that Jesus is truly God, that they would marvel at Christ, they would glorify him, that they would honor the Son. Because here's the reality, we find this from Paul in his writings, regardless of your decision now, the Bible says that there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether willingly or unwillingly. And those who confess unwillingly, when history has come to its full breadth and width and length, they will suffer, it says here, they will suffer the resurrection of judgment. That's a terrifying thought. You see, this section is both an encouragement and a warning. It's a warning to those who continue in the sin of unbelief and disbelief and unwillingness to submit to the lordship of Christ. We, when we place our faith in Jesus, we are claiming him as Lord and Savior over us. The Bible teaches that we will, apart from Christ, we will be judged according to our own works And I tell you this truth, if you stand before God one day with your own works and not the righteousness of Jesus, you will never measure up to God's perfect, righteous, and holy standard. Family, we need Jesus. Why? Because we are sinners in need of grace. That's why Jesus came saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The warning is to those who who continue in this unbelief. And so Jesus is making a critical claim. These greater works that Jesus has and is doing are proof that he is God. Only God can make these claims, and only God could back up these claims. How did he back them up? He raised from the dead. Many of us here are Christians, and so we, yeah, we're like, yeah, I know Jesus has the power of a resurrection. I know that he is the judge. But what about those who don't? You see, Christians, this, this section of Scripture is instructional to you because we live in a world, especially in this country, in this culture, where most people now do not hold to Christian belief, a Christian worldview. Most people disagree with your belief. And the Christian faith is, isn't a private thing that we keep to ourselves. God has, Jesus has commissioned us to, to go and make disciples. So we are, we're missional. It's a missional faith. Christianity is a missional faith where we want people to know about Jesus. Mark 16, 15 summarizes that this way. It says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. 
in this endeavor. So when we think about this calling that we have on our life to, to preach the gospel, to share about Jesus with others, for those especially who are in unbelief or skeptical of the claims of Christianity, we will inevitably come across opposition. Have you ever felt that before? Opposition to your beliefs and who Jesus is. Or perhaps you've encountered this, kind of that partial embrace of Jesus. What do they say? I think he was a good teacher. I think he was a moral man. He's a great example. But I tell you, that partial embrace of Jesus is not enough. We must embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral man. He is the Savior of the world. And so, how then do we engage? I hope to spend the rest of this time helping you with a critical claim we have in kind of these three pathways. If you look to the screens, there's a final critical claim. I draw this from the writings of C.S. Lewis. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. We can't just say he's a good teacher and he's not God. He doesn't let us do that. We can't just say he's a, he's a moral man and just leave it at that or he would have been a complete lunatic. He would be the greatest deceiver that has ever lived if he indeed is not God in the flesh. Lewis says this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. He's speaking of Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. That's what Lewis is saying. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, I want to pause here. In a sense, this is, what, this is what Jesus is getting at in the passage with, with these Jewish religious leaders. It's the intent of the passage that John included this in his gospel. Do you take Jesus at his word? Do you believe he is God, proven in the resurrection, and that he has the authority to execute the greater works of resurrection and judgment? That's what Jesus is trying to draw these leaders into, is this truth. Continuing with Lewis's quote, he says, Now it seems to me obvious that he is neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, hear this, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. What is Lewis getting at here? What he's saying is there's no middle ground with the claims of Jesus. You can't ride the fence. You can't be lukewarm. You either are hot or cold. He's either Lord or he's a lunatic and a liar. He has to be God or he's the greatest deceiver that has ever walked the face of the planet. Now these claims 
from Jesus that we have looked at today are, are rather meaningless if he would have just died on the cross and stayed in the grave. But the resurrection changed everything. We've said that over and over and over again. The resurrection changes everything. Why? Because it proved his divinity. Only God could do something like that. The one who has the keys to give life indeed lives himself. Family, Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He's the living Savior. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, who had an incredible, miraculous encounter with Jesus, he was breathing out terror and murderous threats against the church. And Jesus came to him and knocked him down and said, why are you pushing against me? Why are you killing my people? Paul says this. He says that the the resurrection is the most important thing of our faith. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8. He said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I want to pause here, because later in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're not going to read it this morning, he would kind of make the same, or Lewis probably drew on his claim from Paul, because he would say, Hey, if this didn't happen, we're of all people most to be pitied. The world should feel sorry for Christians if Jesus was never raised from the dead. But he was indeed raised from the dead. He says this, moving on, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He says this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried. Jesus died on the cross bodily. He didn't just faint. He was dead. It says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Who in the world is Cephas? It's Peter. It's one of his closest disciples. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared, this is amazing, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He says most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What is Paul saying? He's saying that this specific church that he's writing this letter to, hey, you want to know about the resurrected Christ? Go talk to the people that saw him for themselves. They're still alive. It says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one and timely board, he also appeared to me, saying, Paul, I've seen the resurrected Jesus, and it changed my life. Some of your friends are are skeptics, or, or perhaps someone in this very room is thinking, but Keith, you draw this from a book of fairy tales and folklore. This is the Word of God. I want to challenge you, Christian. You better learn the reasons why you can have confidence in the Bible. I don't have time to explain that this morning. We'll sit down and talk at some point. But you better be able to defend the Word of God. You need to know where this came from. Because that's just exactly what people are going to say. This is a bunch of made-up stuff. Along with the authority of the Bible, we, we cannot deny the existence of Jesus. We know an historical figure lived, and his name is Jesus. And we cannot deny that something radical occurred 2,000 years ago. Family, if we want to win the, the skeptical world to Christ, we have to be able to defend our faith and help challenge people to think through the claims that they are making. One of those is, is the defense of the resurrection. 
That, that in history, God came in the flesh, that he died on the cross, and that he raised from the grave, and that actually happened. It wasn't just a figment of a bunch of people's imagination. It wasn't just a hallucination. We have good reason. It's not just a blind faith. We have good reason to believe that he resurrected. It's not just some figment of our own imagination. I love, uh, there's an apologist, William Lane Craig, who he gives us four main reasons. I'm drawing these thoughts from him now. I'm sharing his thoughts. Here's four main reasons that we can be confident in the resurrection of Jesus. Reason number one is this. Simply put, that Jesus actually died and he was buried. Which then leads us to claim number two, that the tomb was found empty, okay? And this is important. The first recorded witnesses were women. Why is that aspect important, okay? I'm going to give you an historical lesson. Women, don't be mad at me, okay? We're just talking about history here. And at this point of time, in this historical context, Women were not, this is a patriarchal society, so a male-dominated society. Women were not viewed as a valid witness to something. Okay, They're, In a sense, then their word meant nothing. And yet, the Gospels record who as the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus? Women. Now why, let me just logically think here, if you were going to create a religion and you were going to create a story about this guy that came and was killed and raised from the dead, why would you utilize the witness of people that in a society where their witness was invalid? You wouldn't do that, would you? It would make no sense. Their witness was valid, by the way. We use it and we preach it every Sunday and every year on Easter. So the tombs found empty. The first recorded witnesses were women. It would make no sense to use that witness in a patriarchal society. Number three, okay, this is a huge point. Various people witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a very early writing in history. And he names people by name. These guys saw Jesus. This guy saw Jesus. This group of people saw Jesus. If you doubt that, go take it up with them. Okay, there's, a, there's a theory that these people all got together and they had just had some sort of mass hallucination. I mean, 500 people hallucinating the same thing, that's just rubbish. So that's the third reason we can believe, is that there was many, many witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Number four, I think this is the most important re- reason. The disciples believed he was risen, even when it meant they had nothing to gain. The early disciples all by and large died for the mission of God. They died proclaiming Christ crucified and resurrected. Why would you sacrifice yourself for something that you knew was a lie? No one would do that. Maybe one person, but not all of them. A whole group of people. And it's not like their families were getting rich off of this. They were persecuted. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were killed in the most horrific ways. We believe from church history that Peter was crucified upside down because he preached Christ crucified and resurrected. The only disciple to survive being martyred was John who gave us this gospel and he was boiled in oil and he happened to survive. I mean, you wouldn't even want to survive that, would you? 
And yet he kept writing and he kept proclaiming what? Christ crucified and resurrected. Why? Because it's true. Because it happened. And so you can, Christian, with confidence, believe in just these four reasons. There's a lot of other ones out there. Just these four reasons are sufficient evidence that Jesus did this, that he lived, that he died, and he rose again. But for some of you in the room, the greater issue may just be a hard heart, and I want to share the gospel with you today. I want to share with you how much Jesus loves you. That all of us are sinners, that we fall short of the glory of God. Jesus came in the flesh 2,000 years ago, and he lived perfectly. Every dot and cross of the T accomplished by Christ. He was fully obedient to his Father. He says as much here. He does as his Father does. Jesus went to the cross for you. It was the ultimate act of love that he gave up his life for you. He was treated terribly. He was whipped and beaten. He was an innocent man. And he shed his blood. And he gave up his spirit. And he was placed in the grave. But on the third day, he rose again in victory over sin and death. He's alive. And Jesus has ascended to heaven and he sits at the right hand of his Father where he's ruling and reigning. And Jesus wants you to be a part of his family if you only place your faith and trust in his finished work. Amen.